Blog Talk Radio. WIJSF.com. Women in Jazz South Florida Inc. is a nonprofit educational organization that promotes women musicians globally through events, concerts, performances, clinics, lectures, workshops, articles, interviews, newsletters, courses, contacts, research, history, archives, websites, film, audio and video recordings, and recognition. Visit us at WIJSF.com. You're listening to blogtalkradio.com slash musicwoman with your host, Diva JC.
Good afternoon. This is Dr. Diva JC back from España. Yes, that was adventuresome to say the least. I had the joy of visiting several sections, including Garacha, Girona, Barcelona, and I went to Switzerland. So lots of stories to tell, but the pictures are on Facebook. So you just listened to a beautiful piano solo entitled Sav Lanut, and that is my guest, Mary Feynman's composition. So let's bring her in. Hi, Joan. Hi, Mary. How are you? I'm well, and it's wonderful to be here. And and I saw some of your gorgeous photos, I think, on Instagram. It looked like you were having the time of your life. Hard not to talk about that. It sounds like <laughs> quite an adventure you had. Well, you have to find sunlight, and you have to smile. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Mary, tell us. You're calling from Oakland, California. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. But you're originally from Baltimore, Maryland. So tell us, how did you first come to music as a child? Happy to talk about that. There was music in my household. There was a piano, a a baby grand, and it was there, seemed like from the beginning, my mother played. My mother had played as a child and was probably fairly gifted, had played as a teenager, and at some point in her life opted to do art, uh, visual art over music. Um, but at any rate, there was a piano in, in my home, and I can remember being at the piano when I was very young, you know, three years old, and I was always able to play by ear. Um, so, so that was interesting. When you can play by ear, it, it opens up a whole world. Um, there was other music in the house because I had two older brothers and um, I'm very thankful to have heard, you know, the stuff that they found attractive. One, one played classical guitar and the other just listened to, had lots of records of whatever was current, whether it was uh, jazz or folk guitar or classical or blues. So I was very lucky because I could have stayed in a little classical uh shell only but but i didn't it, there was a lot of different music and the other thing that was in my household i i thought about this as well as the music was a lot of art because my mother was a painter and worked in all kinds of different um medium and that i think really affected my music in a lot of ways that i'm still trying to understand but that was basically mm. where music was in my household and then i had lots of lessons um, mm-hmm. I did have piano lessons growing up. Uh, my mother was smart enough to, <laughs> I guess she paid attention to the teachers and, I, and she must have felt they weren't good enough. So I did a lot of switching around. I think I had what I call typical childhood studies. Um, I was very talented and had that little dark side, you know, of being able to play by ear and improvise a bit. Um, but I knew I didn't have a thing called technique. It was clear to me as I got older that there was something that was, wasn't quite there, and I didn't know how to get it. Um, I guess the other thing that uh, was a big 
big uh, contribution to my music growing up was that I encountered uh, a wonderful teacher towards the end of high school who was a, a music theory teacher, um, and her name was Grace Newsom Cushman. She had her own way of, of approaching music theory through modes. And, you know, that's, as I understand, pretty typical when you're studying jazz, but this was towards classical music. So instead of calling something a secondary dominant or something she'd call it was mixolydian. And I studied privately with her, which was a big deal because uh, nobody was doing independent study in high school in those days. I went to a, was very lucky to go to have gone to a high school called Western High School in Baltimore. It's the last and only all-girl public high school. In fact, just had a 175th anniversary. Um, Anna Devere Smith went there. I think she was a year or two ahead of me I, I, or behind me. I, I never knew her. But it was a big deal to be studying music theory. You know, the, the principal did not like it that I was doing that instead of studying physics. Um, so... When I went to a camp that, that Grace Newsom Cushman had, um, you know, there were a lot of camps, I think, at that time, and there still are, that promote performance for very talented uh, children and teenagers. This camp promoted composition and theory. And I would say what it did for me was solidify everything I had kind of intuited by then, and it, and it gave me a vocabulary. Oh, oh, that's a perfect fifth, and that's a perfect fourth, and those are the names of all those things. And there was a weekly uh, composer's forum where the kids would play the pieces they wrote that week. I definitely felt I was out of my element. These kids seemed um, you know, very passionate about this, and I was impressed that there were these composers. I wished I could be a composer, but it was not something I understood. I didn't feel a passion. And any composing I did at that time was really done from craft. You know, I, it's funny, I have a piece on YouTube right now that the one piece I wrote when I was 16 is called Watercolor. And I wrote it at that camp. And it was kind of written as an assignment. I didn't think much of it until a friend recently told me, you know, how much she loved it. And I decided to put it out there with some uh, photography of a dear friend um, and it's also part of a book of pieces I'm hoping to publish this year but you know my take home from that was that composers was another animal it wasn't who, who I was um, I've, I've thought about the influences of those years the, the other interesting thing at that camp was it was the first time I encountered a young woman sitting at a piano and improvising for dancers because dance was a little part of that camp and little did I know that that would become a huge part of my life, be, becoming an improviser for modern dance and ballet class. Uh, I think the other, again, as I've given some thought to, you know, having had the privilege of having a mentor those two years, what did I really take from it? She, she had two interesting other, other things. We, we did a kind of keyboard harmony, and I think learning certain hand positions um, and the configurations under the hand has, has stayed with me forever, um, for better or for worse. You know, it's, it's a, it's a four-part harmony. Sometimes it sounds like gospel. Sometimes it'll sound like Mozart, but it's, it's under my hand. And the second thing, I, I think I recall this directly. She did something that she would call thinking in time. 
She wanted people to have this skill of being able to think in time. And by that she meant um, if I were sitting at the piano and going to play a chord progression every four bars from C major to G major to A minor or something, well, while you were playing, you would be improvising for three bars, and on the fourth bar you'd say, and moving to G major. So you were like in two time zones at once, right? It was a little crazy-making. You're, you're, you're doing what you're doing, but you're also thinking ahead. Now, you know as a musician, Joan, when we play, we need to be present. We're, we're not in our left brain um, thinking in that way. But it gave me a skill, I think, the skill of being able to shift attention very rapidly, which you need as a pianist and you certainly need it as an accompanist. So that mm-hmm. was my life through high school. And mm-hmm. then, uh, yeah, I, I went off for one year. I wanted... I was very strongly academic, so I went to college where I had a choice, you know, to do music as well as academics. I went to the University of Michigan, which had a music school. It was 1969. It was a very interesting time, as as I'm sure you remember, any of us who were (laughs) alive then in 1969. At at that particular campus, it it was a big deal some days to get to class. There was always a picket line to, to cross or Hare Krishna was very active. Um, it was not a great it was not a great year for me. I stayed there one year, and uh, then moved on. Uh, lived in Boston for two years, where I studied classical guitar. I did, you know, I played guitar growing up because I heard it from my brothers. I played a lot of folk guitar, and I studied some classical guitar. And I was making a living then, once uh, you know, playing for dancers at a. I think it was called Boston Conservatory. I'm not sure if they're still around. And I made my living for many years um, playing for dancers uh, and then accompanying. And I would accompany a voice studio. But uh, the other major thing that happened for me in my 20s is I, I moved to Montreal just on a fluke. I, I don't know about you, but some of the biggest decisions that I've ever made um, kind of happened on a whim. Um, I, I loved folk dancing in those days. And one day I met a folk dancer who said, do you want to hitchhike to Montreal tomorrow? I said, okay. In those days, it was safe to do. I would not recommend this now for anyone. But uh, in 1970, 1971, this is what people did. So there I did was, you know, dancing my way up to the turnpike to Montreal. And we were going to meet an acquaintance of his, who was a woman who was also a pianist, who'd had some really interesting experiences in her life. She'd already played forever, was hugely developed as a pianist, seemed way more than I was, and yet she'd also found this uh, disharmony with that things weren't quite how she wanted. And she met a teacher who, I remember at the time, the way she explained it to me was that when she began studying with him, there was this circuitry. There was there was a through through line between you and the and the instrument. They weren't separate. But more than that, he taught the choreography of the hands. And this was a man named uh, Phil Cohn. We called him Phil Cohn. He was Professor Philip Cohn. And this woman, Laurie Altman, is also a phenomenal pianist. Um, or Loretta Milkman. She also goes by. She's been my best friend for for the last uh, almost fifty years. And I stayed in Montreal for 10 years. It's really where I learned the choreography of the hands, which meant basically how the hell do you move from one place to another? 
You know, what are the sensations? What should it feel like? What are your choices? And under it all was, what is your musical intention? Because the technique was always based on musical intention. You know, and I had managed to play piano for 20 years, really, without people talking about that. So I kind of marinated in that for 10 years. And I'm going to get a little water, because that's a lot of talking. (laughs) Yeah, when did you... um begin to compose your own music and yes how long how just a moment and how many songs or compositions would you say that you have are they mostly piano solo or song or yeah. do you orchestrate for ensemble yes yes I'm going to see if I can remember all those questions. <laughs> you'll, you'll help me out if, if, I, if I don't. Um, I've written about 80 pieces, I think, and the bulk of them are songs. I've also written for orchestra. That's a whole story. And I've probably written about 15 piano pieces, and a lot of them are slated to be um, for other instruments. I joke mm. that I take dictation from the universe on the wrong instrument. And uh, the story behind that is, you know, from my 20s to my early 50s, I, as I said, I did a lot of accompanying. I used to also play for weddings and parties where I was, I used to say I was paid not to sing. I never sang. I would play classical music. I created my own fake books. And um, one day when I was 53 years old, I decided to, See an energy mover because I had terrible insomnia and I wanted to see what she had to say. I had been dealing with it with not a lot of good luck. And I went to see her because I was told that she could see things that, that other people couldn't see. First thing she said to me was, well, your energy has all stopped at your lumbar spine for the last 30 years. I'll give you a hint. If you ever see a psychic or energy mover, they'll probably tell you that. Apparently all our energy gets stuck at our lumbar spine. But the second thing she said to me was, oh, the reason you're waking up every night is to write music. And, you know, I didn't know what to say. It just just did not seem possible. I've written about this a bit on my website. I'm a little ginger about it. I I don't go into too much detail. I -hmm. really didn't believe her. And as I said on my website, I think my immediate thought was, ooh, that sounds too lonely. It just sounded very lonely to me to imagine being in my bedroom in the dark, you know, was I going to light a candle? What was I going to do? But she knew something way better than I did. And in the next few weeks, I started getting all these strange physical sensations. This I don't talk about on my website. And, you know, either I was becoming very ill or something very strange was happening. And as it turned out, I began hearing things. And the usual inner critic that I had struggled with just wasn't there. The inner critic was overpowered by the fact that I was now hearing music and I, and I couldn't deny it. And it was my own music. I would just be walking around slowly and little fragment in my head and it was constantly changing. And right. all the, all the things that I had done before Joan, I mentioned, you know, that I had played for dancers so much over the years, I had recorded a lot of music because they were interesting improvisations I would do, especially for modern dance class where you weren't tied to a, you know, having to play in eight bars or 16 or 32 bars. 
And I was suddenly took one of the pieces and it was as if my hands knew what to do. And it wasn't because I'd studied composition. You know, I'd studied composition just a little bit in my life and it hadn't been, it hadn't been good. No, I tried to be this counterpoint. Yeah. Mogul, mogul music opens up like a labyrinth for you. Modes. So it was that yes. teacher that taught you that. But I have another question. So do you have a publishing company? I don't, Joan, and I need to speak to you about that. One of my goals for this year has been to publish a book of six pieces. I've worked intensively with a, um, a fellow who's put my stuff into software for me, um, and I have to figure out how, how to publish them. I'm, I'm not so keen on, uh, you know, the little okay. sheet music. Plus. So the question yeah. is, do you copyright your music? Oh, yes. Yes, my music's and copyrighted. Well, do you copyright it under your name or under a company? Yeah, so far it's under my name. I haven't done it under the, under the name of a company. Yeah, so you I haven't done that. BMI or ASCAP? I I am with ASCAP. I am with ASCAP. I am a member of ASCAP. Yes, but only as your name. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. I didn't. I haven't made a a, a publishing yeah. called publishing company. Yeah, that's what you need to do. Okay. Yeah. You can. You, I will, you you're you're with ASCAP as a writer, but are you with ASCAP as a publisher? Right. I am not because you know there's just been so much different advice I've gotten over the years as to the need to do that or not. Um, or to make it almost like a fictitious, they don't think they use the word fictitious, but something else, I forget the term, you know, of, of well, the publishing a company. company that, it's a company because it's a yeah. business, you know. Right. The, the business is what most people do not um, understand, the business side of it, you understand. So it's just simple. You, if you're thinking about doing a book, that becomes your published item, right? Right. But right. You you copyright the book, and then you list it with uh, ASCAP, but as right. a publisher, as a publisher. Got it. Not as Mary Feynman. Got it. Yeah. Well, I will take take it all to heart. The book is not quite ready. I had come to my sixth piece and then got very involved in some other things. But my goal is to publish the book this this year. And I will confer with you again, make sure I've dotted my I's and crossed my T's. Um, yeah, for sure. Thank you. Yeah. I still... So, yeah. We want to play. Let me play. Um, mm. this piece that you felt that you wanted to share with us, which is Shachina, is that right? Your Hebrew was really good on Savlanut, and Savlanut, okay. I would want to just say a few words about if if we have some time. What do you think? Because yes, it's a piece very definitely. dear to my heart. 
Um, sure. It, this happens to be a Hebrew term that um, it has meaning in modern Hebrew. I believe it's translated simply as patience. But I learned this term um, when I was studying a, a Jewish uh, spiritual tradition that I was learning about called Musar, which is about character traits and and ethics and the intentions of and the inner life of the heart and how we want to perfect those things. And in a class I was taking, Savlanu, I don't know about you, but when I think about patience, it always is connected with the word waiting. You know, we're waiting for something and we can't wait for it. But I had a wonderful teacher who lives in the Bay Area, a woman named Estelle Frankel, and she had a very interesting definition of patience of Savlanut, and her, her definition was simply the ability to tolerate the present moment and the capacity to, dis, to um, tolerate discomfort. And I would love to say that I wrote a piece based on that. It would be a really good story, but it's not quite how it went. It turned out I was already writing this piece. I was, you know, in a gestation. It wasn't completely written at all. It was in the early stages. And I realized that the piece embodied this. The piece itself, if anyone cares to go re-listen, I think I have it on YouTube. Um, it'll actually come out on a CD this year. It, uh, the piece is impatient within itself. It's cutting itself in half. It's trying to hurry. It wants to get to the party, C major. So that's why I named the piece Savlanut. I felt like it embodied all of that. Shekhinah is another Hebrew term. You know, it's funny, out of 80 pieces, somehow today I've chosen two of them that had a, have relationship to Judaism as this other weird thing, Joan, if you know anyone who knows anything about this. Seven or eight pieces I've written in the last two years all begin with the letter S. I know it means something. I don't know what, but every single one begins with an S. And Shekhina, um I can speak volumes on that, but I will just say in a few sentences that it, it is also a Hebrew word that's, that it stands for the feminine presence of the divine in the world. Um, and it's a song of, of hope. And I think, like many of my lyrics, sometimes uh, when I listen, you know, I don't know where my lyrics come from. I should tell you that. I, I don't decide what I'm going to write. I don't decide what I'm going to write. In the music or the lyrics, I feel like I get music in the night. I, I wake up, I still have insomnia, and the only good gift is as, I, as I'm falling back to sleep, that's when I tend to hear music, and I try to pay attention to it. You know, I record these things. They're written on the backs of paper. But um, I won't say any more about Shekhinah. I think I've probably said enough. <laughs> and that as well as... I just want to say these are very good rough mixes. They haven't been mastered yet, um, and but they will be mastered later later this year. Okay. So here we go.
sculpted by her goodness Help her guard your soul, your body from harm Very peaceful peace. Anything that reveres the divine feminine works for me. So, Mary, I would like to talk about the National League of American Pen Women for a few minutes, if we could. Yes, good, good. Absolutely. So, now I think there are three members that have joined Women in Jazz South Florida from yes. the National League of American Pen Women because they're musicians. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, you and you and uh, Grace. Sheila and Grace. Yeah. Yeah. Our and that's how I got to you through through these two wonderful women, and mm-hmm. I know probably. A lot of listeners don't know what National League of American Pen Women is. I like to joke and say it's one of the oldest organizations you've never heard of. Because I think it's, is it from 1865? Something like that. It's it's before the 1900s. And it's an amazing, it's had an amazing history. Uh, But it exists now as, uh, again, one of the oldest arts organizations that includes it includes people in, in all the arts. Uh, the, the three categories they like to talk about are art, art, music, and writing. They call it letters. But, you know, there are choreographers. There, there's everything. And um, I don't even know how I found out about it, but I belong to a local branch here. My branch happens to be primarily visual artists with a few writers. There's two other musicians who are in as uh, other things, but they're also very gifted musicians. It's, it's a hard organization to describe. For me, the, the main thing I feel is this 
wonderful exchange of ideas, feeling with your with kindred spirits. Uh, you know, again, because I grew up with a mother who was an artist. Um, when I'm with these women, I feel like I've found my group. Sometimes more than I feel with with other musicians, honestly. Um, but I met because I don't know too many composers uh, from from League of Pen Women. I met two women who live out of state. Grace uh, Joy Reed, who lives in Virginia, who's become a dear friend, who's a lot younger than me, and Sheila, who's older. <laughs> I'm in the middle, and we talk a lot about, uh, you know, our our challenges and everything we're going through as as composers and trying to get our music out in the world. You know, there's no end to the number of music courses you could take now, music business. Um, it's a cottage industry. It, it doesn't always lead you where, where you think it's going to. Um, <laughs> I talked a lot. What would you say about Penn Women? Because you've been president of your branch in Florida, I believe. And, no, no, and no. Then you, no. No, okay. Oh, I know no. Sheila has at different times. Yes, yes. Sheila was the president of um, the branch that I belong to. Yes. Yeah. But what I wanted to tell you uh, was that I've been a member for about three or four years, but because I run my own nonprofit, Mm -hmm. it is, I'm not as dedicated, you know, I'm not as, yeah. I don't participate as much right. as I would if I wasn't doing my own nonprofit. Right. You can only wear so many hats at a time. <laughs> we only have so many heads. Yeah. And, you know, I, what I did do was I became the chair the music for the music award. I was the chair, so I gathered the music, and then I sent mm-hmm. it to the judge, you know. But yeah, other yeah. than that, I'm not really very effective. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Other than, yeah, I have, yes, I have yeah. been able to you know, get the musicians, do a radio show with them, and promote them, promote you, you know. Well, that's huge. It's certainly effective, and I'm just so grateful that I got to you through NLAPW. And, you know, Joan, I want to encourage women to learn a little more about it, and they're definitely seeking members. They're definitely seeking young women, too, to revitalize this. Um, because a lot of the members are older, older women, you know, because it's already taken, you know, their lives to create their bodies of work. And, you know, they've raised families and things, but seeking new members all the time. We want to revitalize it. Your organization, Women in Jazz South Florida, is amazing. And I would say, if you'll permit me for anyone listening, it's, it's, it's only a little bit of a misnomer because it's, it's not just jazz. I don't mean just, yeah. but you have, you have women all over the world in right. Eastern Europe, everywhere, all kinds of instrumentalists. It's jazz, but also um, definitely uh, other kinds of music. So yes, you're, you're, yeah, you're the energizer. It, it began as 
women in jazz South Florida because I was a jazz musician and yes. because I was in South Florida, you know. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, it's it's um it's been good. It's I've had yes. a wonderful time being a musician. I just got to the point where I think I had enough of being on stage and I toured a lot in my life. Yeah. Moved around a lot. I just came back yeah. from Spain where I was promoting the magazines. Did you get your copies? Oh, yes, yes. I think I let you know that a, a while back. Yeah. Oh, okay. it's wonderful. And you, so what, I know do you, you, what do you think of the magazine? It's it's a wonderful format. It's a wonderful resource to to learn about other people. I had no idea there were so that there were women harpists in the world doing jazz and doing all kinds of things. And I also learned that you you studied harp yourself. So it's just a real eye opener. And and you and you and for the you are primarily women, but you've also included men in in this. I right. So that's important yes. to know. Um, it's, I know your magazine's a labor of love. It's it's great. Um, you've had a more normal trajectory in in terms of the order in which you've done things. I just want to say to encourage other women. There's many trajectories. I started hearing music again out of the blue when I was 53, and I'm 70. And that's a whole other ball of wax. You know, as women, are we supposed to talk about our age? And I've decided, yeah, I want to do that because I want to be able to uh, let other people know what I've gone through and that life is not necessarily a linear progression. And if it inspires some people, um, that's all the better. So I've become a performer much later in life. And I wrote my stuff for orchestra when I was uh, seven years ago and you know, it was one of the craziest years of my life. Um, I was very fortunate to have been given a commission. And I think it's because Michael Morgan, the uh, fabulous conductor and very community-oriented human being here in Oakland, you know, he saw me perform and he saw how much it connected with audiences. So he gave me this wonderful opportunity. Um, my husband referred, referred to it as the Grand Detour. You know, I would have been a fool not to do it, uh, but I was heavily involved in the songwriting, and I knew nothing about writing for orchestra. I was fortunate that I'd written piano pieces that because of the strength of their, you know, innate composition, they lent themselves to orchestra very well, but it was a year of intense learning. Um, I still have to take up the challenge to do it again when I said earlier that I'm taking dictation from the universe for the wrong instrument, a lot of my stuff's very awkward for the piano. It, it doesn't sound difficult, but if you're a pianist and you play it, sometimes there's weird distribution of the hands. And that's because it really, you know, it really should be played by another instrument along with the piano. So well, I have my own challenges on this. All of the great orchestrators played a keyboard. Because yes. all of the instruments are there, you know. Yes. But you have to have the luxury of an orchestra to play your music. Oh, absolutely. 
that's a beautiful word. It was a luxury. I mean, I was just so fortunate. And I got to sit on stage, you know, and look out at 3,000 people. I was a smart cookie at that time. I had been told very wisely, don't perform yourself. It's, it's too intense, given that there was about one and a half rehearsals. And so I decided I would not play the piano. But I wrote a song cycle. It was four pieces. And uh, the, the vocalist was a woman named Wesla Whitfield, a very beloved uh, singer of jazz and jazz standards who, who died recently. Um, but I wrote one of the songs as, as a duo for the two of us. That's where I, I give myself a pat on the shoulder for being smart enough to do that. I didn't, I t- didn't take on the whole thing as a performer, but I sang one of the songs with her, and it was a surprise. I hadn't told anyone I was going to do that. And, uh, yeah, I got to look out at that audience and, and see how the music affected people. And that's the thing that makes you keep going for me, for, for me, you know, there's so many ways to do music and you have to struggle to get your ego out of the way. That's, that's what I find. And I played piano for years. I never wanted to perform in front of people. I didn't think I was good enough. My ego was a mess over it. And the only way I was able to start performing at 53 and start singing, you know, then I started studying voice for 10 years um, is because I realized I had something to share of value and I had a gift and I didn't have to think it was about me. And that's what enables me to perform. As soon as you start thinking it's about you only, you're a mess. How how has that been for you, Joan, as a performer? Was that a problem for you ever or did performance come easily for you? Well, I've been on stage since I was four. So it was Mm. Second nature. It was natural, natural. Yeah, it wasn't for me, but I've become, um, people think when I perform that it's effortless, you know, and it should seem effortless at that moment, but of course a lot of of work has has gone into it. Um, Yeah, I'm glad we got to talk about the orchestra because it was an amazing experience and and I hope to be able to revisit it. Very wonderful to hear re- real instruments and not have the stuff be on MIDI, right? <laughs> so tell us about sweet and suffering. Yes. And again, I give the caveat one more time. I think I've chosen all pieces here that were not mastered yet. This piece has, there we are with the S's again. Um, it's had a funny history. Um I started this piece many years ago. If I haven't already said so, I'm, I'm a slow writer. I write my things over years. Shekhina, I think I may have written in under two months, and that's probably a record. Sweet and Stuff for Stuff in Place, I started when it was George W. Bush and Rumsfeld. And I don't know if I'd already written certain words that were reflective of, to me, of that administration. But I put it away when Obama came in because I thought, you know, who was I to talk about suffering things didn't seem quite so overt then we got another administration and I thought well you better finish this song so sweet and suffering places about a lot of things it was done at the end of a long day in the studio and I felt like yeah I'm gonna get my ego out of the way right here (laughs) right now Joan not a perfect recording but I really wanted to be able to share it because I think given what we've all gone through in the last year and a half I I think it's a timely piece Okay, well, let's 
Listen to it.
and suffering. Okay. So Mary, have you given up the suffering for the sweetness? I, you know, it's not a giving up for me, and it's not even a an attempt to reconcile them. It's it's a recognition that there's both, and there's both all the time, and that's the truth for me as I see it. So that's what I wrote about. But yes, as much as possible, should should give up what uh, I think the Buddhists call the optional suffering. Is that what Sylvia Borstein says? Some some pain, something that may be painful, but suffering is optional. Yeah, I'm just telling it how I see it. Yeah. Okay, and then tell us what, looking back now, what would Mm -hmm. you advise a young woman coming into the music industry today? Yeah, Joan, I have good news because I thought you were going to ask me that question, and I've given it some thought this week did a lot of writing little by little. And my first thought was, I don't have a darn thing to tell them because there's a whole different music world with different technologies and software and intense strategies of social media that didn't exist before. That's what they all get to do. So I figured, but I have some broad, broad advice anyway. <laughs> um, the first thing I'd say to a young woman, an old woman, anyone at all, is if, if you have a passion, it's, it's going to be there. You can't get rid of it. You're going to have to deal with it. It won't go away. I would remind ourselves that uh, life is not necessarily a linear progression uh, to be with your integrity, no matter what you're doing in music or anything, because no one can take that from you. And I think the tough one, young woman, old woman, anybody, is uh, – it's like Shekhina says, take good care of yourself. This is not so easy. We, we're really not trained how to do that. I would further say don't limit yourself. You don't know what all you might do. And even though you have fears, don't let them rule you. Uh, two other that were helpful for me, and since I'm a member of the human race, I figure they might be helpful for other people. Two interesting tools for me to learn about understanding the kind of choices I make and what would be good choices is, is the study of the Enneagram. And the other one is to study something to learn about something called human design. You can Google human design. It'll, it'll knock your socks off. Um, that's all my advice to young and old and all the women in between. <laughs> okay. Human <laughs> I covered everybody. No, but that's good. I think one of the things that I find that is lacking is mentorship. You know, I don't know if it's it's the desire of the mentor not to be bothered or Mm. the desire of the mentee not to think that anything to learn, you know. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. We, you know, we have to thank our lucky stars when we've had good mentors and that's why I like to mention their names. And I I think you're right because there's a music business now, again, no end of courses. These people are not necessarily your mentors, Um, but we all need that. We all need that. We really do. Mm -hmm. You're you're absolutely right. Um, Yeah. I wanted to mention that uh, Sweet and Suffering Place also is another song that I hope to release this year. I have an 
album of about 13 songs that have been sitting there that were languishing during, during COVID that, again, still need the mastering. And I may do another version of Sweet and Suffering Place, I'm not sure. But I hope to have that song out this year. And if anyone wants to learn about that, they can look at my website. You can always contact me through the website. And a lot of my songs are already on YouTube, I should mention, as well, a lot of different music. Good. And so everything is linked at your website, maryfineman.com. Right, yes. So it's been wonderful to talk to you and and I'm just amazed at the energy you have seeing as you just got back from Spain and a time change and and all of that. That's amazing to me. It took a few days to bounce back. It did. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I have one more tune from you. You okay. and me. So yes. tell me about you and me. Yeah. I love you and me. <laughs> I love that song, and it's actually the name of an album. It's the title song from an album. Um, when I think about that, now you told me I should probably cut down on the suffering. I, I will after this call. But when I think about that song, it makes me sad because I think of all the stuff on the cutting room floor. There were a lot of lyrics for that song that I ended up not using. And, you know, songs have their evolution. It's, it started out as a little bit lightweight, uh, I would say, and I, and I changed those lyrics, it, uh, I'm also often very deliberately unspecific in writing the pronouns of who's who. I don't say who you and me is. Most people assume this is a couple, and I think that it fits that the best. But I wanting even it to fit the scenario of a parent and child or also one's own relationship with the divine. So that's what I would say about you and me. Okay, and, Mary. Yeah. Well, thank you for being a wonderful guest, and I really appreciate your membership. And let's see if we can get some more cross pollination between the two yes. organizations. You know. Oh, I know so, we will from today. I've had friends who are coming to this, and they're artists and and musicians, and they will be so interested. And I just want to thank you for all the work you've done and continue to do, Joan. It's, it's awesome. And I'm very grateful that you had me on today. Okay. And tell them they can look at both magazines for free yes. until August 31st. Okay. So very here good. is You and Me by Mary Feynman. Your back, you could rub my feet. There 
when you'd rest your head, I would be your retreat. I would be your retreat. You and me picking apricots and plums together. Play cat's cradle, be all thumbs together. You and me, you and me. Every blossom, leaf, and thorn See how tangled and how torn Who's to say we'll find begins And trellis roses form I have memorized your face You have captured my embrace Morning glory, tide furled Time to recreate the world Time to recreate the world educational organization that promotes women musicians globally through events, concerts, performances, clinics, lectures, workshops, articles, interviews, newsletters, courses, contacts, research, history, archives, websites, film, audio and video recordings, and recognition. Visit us at WIJSF.com. You're listening to blogtalkradio.com slash musicwoman with your host, Diva J.C.